Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Crash Moto GP podcast. We're at episode 29 now, can you believe it, with myself, Harry Benjamin, Pete McLaren and Keith Hewin uh, on the show today. A look back at all the action from the final round of the season in Valencia, which saw Peko Bagnaia claim the spoils in Moto GP. Remy Gardner seal the Moto 2 World Championship and a first time Moto 3 winner. It was also a swan song for a few notable drivers particularly Valentino Rossi the nine-time world champion announced his retirement from the sport earlier in the year of course during what has been a difficult season but nothing can take away from what this man has achieved and done for MotoGP and Keith he came away from his final race with a top 10 finish but the outpouring of support and celebrations afterwards just shows how much Valentino is revered, admired, respected, loved, all of the above. And uh, well, it certainly brought a bit of a tear to my eye as well. How do you cram it all into one show? I mean, it's impossible, isn't it, with, with what he's done? That's the, that's the problem on our show and everyone else's show. There's producers, television producers around the world at the moment trying to work out how their tributes are going to yeah, they've been working on it for weeks, obviously, because this is the final weekend. Remembrance Sunday, by the way, uh, which is a very important day anyway, lest we forget. But we'll always remember what happened at Valencia today. And I think a 10th place was about the best he was going to manage. But if you look at the times, you know, he was within half a second of your race leader all of the time, every single lap of that 27 laps. It's not like he's retiring because he can't ride a motorbike anymore. Poor old Danilo Petrucci, also also a retiree from the sport, obviously, today. Last place for him, miles off the pace, he was done. Valentino Rossi was competitive to his very last of, what is it, 432 Grand Prix he's done, something like that. Pete will know the stats, I know he will. Um, but 432 Grand Prix, and he's still competitive. And he's, you know, Morbidelli was behind him on the, on his sister, Yamaha. Um, so Rossi... Went out with an. I think the words were. I mean, they've been used loads and loads and loads of times. It transcends the sport, and he did what he did for our sport was made it global. You know, it was a little global back in the Barry Sheen days, but sort of really that's the only other time I can think of where the sport has been transcended into a more mm. uh, you know across all demographics across across uh, globally. I mean, that's that's the word for it. And Rossi's the guy. You say Valentino Rossi, they know that means MotoGP. You know, he's the name. It's, <laughs> who do you think you are? Valentino Rossi, says your friendly policeman. You know, it's it's always going to be that way. And he's he's a good bloke. 
but bloody ruthless. I mean, we were talking about this before we came on air a minute ago. It was, um, you know, there's no tougher guy. I don't care what anybody says. He has got a ruthless strategy, runs right the way through his veins. Crew chief, when it's time to go, off you go. Jerry Burgess, you know, last man to know, like any divorce, he's the last man to know it's coming. You know, when it came to changing, you know, staff this year for Patronus, you know, Alex Briggs and all the rest of them suddenly, you know, he couldn't make that happen. So he hadn't got his main men around. That's the only, for me, it's the only probably slightly sad part of it is that some men that should have been in Valencia, well, I know they're a long way away in Australia and it's a bloody long trip to make for a bit of nostalgia. But the fact is, Alex Briggs was a major part of his life, as, as was several of the other guys that were with him, of course, you know, you know Brent, um, you know, Bernie Ansel's there anyway. So um, he's still in the paddock. But Jerry Burgess was a major part of his team for a long time. And Jerry Burgess, it would have been lovely to have seen Jerry Burgess in a sort of cameo role of wandering through Park Ferme, um, <laughs> studying everything that's going on in everybody else's bikes. So, like I say, right at the beginning, 26 years at the top level, forget about the amount of world championships, he should have won more. There's no way that, you know, he should have won the one that Nicky Hayden won if he hadn't made a couple of silly mistakes. One of them at Valencia, of all things, that, that cost him the title in 2006. You know, he should have won 10, 10 titles minimum, really, in my view. Um, but from a personality point of view, there isn't anybody that's going to be close to him. I mean, there are brilliant riders, but he is the worldwide global personality of MotoGP and he's certainly created a, a legacy for himself as well that's not just for himself as Valentino Rossi but for the next generation of MotoGP riders through his VR46 and, and Pete let's bring you this on, on as well because I know you've just finished up um, with Rossi and, and what was his final race debrief so what was that like and, and what get, get any good sound bites from that <laughs> As always with Rossi, there's always good quotes, isn't there? But I mean, I mean, the, the first thing to say is that, you know, this wasn't a tearful, you know, as we've seen all through this re retirement sort of procedure, if you like, right from the initial announcement, this was a, a genuinely happy Rossi. I think there was a, a massive weight lifted off his shoulders, you know, and, and going out, let's say, with his head held high, as Keith says, you know, the best that realistically he could have done. You know, there's no fairy tales in motorsport. And, you know, he, he genuinely feared, he said a few weeks ago, he feared, you know, Valencia is his worst track. He feared he could have been finishing last. You know, you imagine that. The, the, the last sort of statement on Rossi's racing career, last place at Valencia. I mean, that would have been a real travesty. So, you know, he, he really sort of rallied all the, all the guys around him. And he, he said he, you know, he was almost like he was fighting for the championship, you know, he, and he came in with all this pressure to, to really perform. And you could just see how happy and relieved he was that, uh, you know, he's gone out, as he said, he's, he's a top 10 rider today. And he'll keep remembering that. My last race, I was a top 10 rider. And that's the best that he could hope for. He said it was probably his best race of the year. So there we go. Did you see the riot there was in the, in the, the garage when he qualified in Q2, when he went straight through the qualifying two? You'd think he'd set pole. I've never seen anything like it. He'd only gone through Q1 into Q2 and everyone was going, well, he didn't go through Q1. He went straight to Q2. But you know what I mean? He, he qualified in the top 10 in 10th place. And that's a result as well because that qualifying is, is in many respects, tougher than a race. You know, you've got to put it on the line. You know, you have got to be on the edge of crashing everywhere to get yourself into the top 10. Um, I think it was a great finish and kind of underlined. Some people will say 10th place. <laughs> but for a 42-year-old bloke that's about to retire, who's got a baby on the way, to motivate yourself to be within that kind of time range is incredible. It kind of underlines just how good he was. Anybody that's been on a racetrack, anybody who's had anything to do with this sport for as long as we have, obviously, will understand 
just what a great end to his career that actually was um, on a track he didn't like. And on a day, you remember as well, Friday was horrible. It was wet and cold. So it's not, they were behind the game already straight away. So brilliant. But that Q2, when everyone was jumping up and down like he'd set pole, I've never seen anything quite like it. He'd gone straight <laughs> through into Q2. That was, that was like, that was a winning moment for Patronus, uh, his side of the garage anyway. And of course, helped by Pecco, wasn't it? Who, who let him have a toe behind. And then today we saw Morbidelli was behind. You can imagine one of the questions was, so Frankie, what was going on there? And he said, look, I didn't want to be anywhere near him in this final race, you know, because could you imagine if something went wrong and he took him out? He said, look, there was no room to attack him. And he said he actually, as the race went on, he got quicker and we pulled away from Dovi, which they did. They ended up finishing a couple of seconds uh, in front. And he said it was just a pleasure to see Rossi sort of really enjoying those last laps uh, as a MotoGP rider. So, yeah, Frankie Frankie said, look, there was no place to attack. And there we are. Um, But but it did all go wrong. It very nearly did all go wrong. Takazumi, um, Takazumi Katayama. Where am I going? <laughs> <laughs> Takaki Nakagami. <laughs> Takaki Nakagami, when he threw it out the road. Takazumi Katayama. Does that give you some indication of how my brain works? There's something that just rolls around in there, you know. <laughs> every, time, every now and again, it's something vital. <laughs> Takaki Nakagami, I do apologise. <laughs> he, he nearly, I tell you what, he was close to wiping Rossi out when he slid off. Ooh, I tell you what. That would have been an end to the season. I bet Nakagami wouldn't be back next year. I think everyone was holding their breath, just praying that Rossi and both uh, Danilo Petrucci just had a a, a, a a nice, steady run and to cross the chequered flag. Because, of course, Petrucci was another man starting his final race and he's been taken out the last couple of races. So everybody just wanted to make sure that he could actually finish his final race in MotoGP because, I mean, Keith, we were speaking about this offer as well. The nicest guy, yes, not as successful as Valentino Rossi in MotoGP, but he didn't come the conventional way. And considering where he's come from and what he's done, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, coming up through Superstock to start with, he's a big old lad as well, weighs a bit more. Powder weight is a massive thing in MotoGP as it is in most motorized sports. But, you know, Danilo Petrucci is a nice guy. Everybody loved him. But you knew he was destroyed. He he wasn't going to finish anywhere other than last. Anyway, no one was going to interfere with his race because he was so far off the pace. I mean, he was in tears on the grid. He just, he was beside himself. I mean, it was was an awfully emotional weekend for him. And he's had a few of them. I mean, when he won that race at Mugello, pinched it. Yeah. I mean, good on him. Great guy. I really, really worry about where he's heading. The Paris-Dakar, no, it's not Paris-Dakar anymore. It's a Dakar, isn't it? Can I get any more things wrong? Do you want me to do commentary? <laughs> <laughs> At least I don't call them drivers, Harry. Don't hey, I've gotten me. way better at that. Wait, it only took me 29 episodes. <laughs> but the point being is that he's a lovely fella. He's out of it. He's going to the Dakar. I, I can't think of anything I'd rather not do um, than, than go to the Dakar. Sure, if he's not going there for a ride, but he won't be going there for a ride. He'll be going there to do his absolute best, and we know how that can turn out. That is a, it's like going to the TT. You know, let's go to the Isle of Man TT and have a a road race on the side you know hang on a second it's a completely different kettle of fish it's it's going to take something special from him to to perform but he will perform i believe that you know his weight his strength and all the things that have been against him a little bit in MotoGP will be with him when he gets to something like the dakar so good luck to him and then there's tom Lutie, someone who completely unheralded this weekend and he's got something like the second or third most grand prix of any rider that, that he's ridden in so tom Lutie retired this weekend Sergi Sendra, who no one will have heard of outside of broadcasting, who is an absolutely brilliant uh, part of the Dorna 
uh, hierarchy, if you like, when it comes to innovation of cameras, graphics, whatever it might be. Sergi Sendra leaves us this weekend. And Steve Day, <laughs> now there's a bit of a story there. Steve Day, obviously the world feed commentator, he's leaving as well. Now, it hasn't been announced yet, but I know where he's going because I was going for the same job and the bugger's got it over me. So there you go. He's He's got the BSB job. Um, I'm sure that's where he's going. No one's confirmed it to me yet, but um, British Superbikes have got Steve Day, I think, next year. And the only reason I know that is because they haven't confirmed me going there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so poor old Jack. Poor old Jack Burnicle looks like he's got a bit of competition. I'm vying for the job, and now Steve Day looks like he's got it. So, and he wouldn't have made an announcement that he was leaving Dorner if he hadn't got that jacked up already. So, um, good luck, Steve. You're a really good commentator, a really good bloke, and I wish you all the best. And there's a backstory to that as well, Harry and, and Pete. That, that, that in 2013, when BT got the the MotoGP job, got they got the rights to it. Um, Steve Steve Day was in for trying to get the commentator's job for that as well, and I kind of gazumped him a bit for that I, I think probably because i'd got a little bit more experience in broadcasting and he hadn't at that point um and now he's gazumped me for the domestic job <laughs> see the uh, the broadcaster moves the broadcaster moves are just as entertaining as the rider moves sometimes it's uh, it's a hot market this time of year as well uh, which i'm learning apparently um but uh, we wish them all the best uh, as well uh, going through and we'll, we'll come on to tom Luty a bit more in, in moto 2 as well he wasn't uh, he started well but uh, fell back through the pack let's talk though about some of the uh, the racing action from moto gp now and it was uh, jorge martin on pole had a bad night and miller but that was not the way it stayed but it it was uh, a Ducati lockout for the first time on the podium with Peko Bagnaia picking up yet another win ahead of Martin and Miller, who rounded out the podium. Uh, so, Keith, you know, Ducati have come on very strong in these final couple of races, haven't they? Well, we've kind of talked about it quite a lot on this podcast over the last 28 of them. <laughs> 29 were on well, this year. Um you know the amount of the amount of bikes they're going to have on the grid next year, uh, and they're finishing this year in a in a really good position. Now that kind of says to me that they've got quite a lot in order, and with the only they've only got seven. Yeah, you know, this is remarkable. You know, seven test days. Two of them will be at the Madalinka circuit or whatever you call it, Madalinka or over in Indonesia, the new track. So two of those seven will be on a track they've got no data for. So it's just going to be riding around working stuff out and it will be dirty. So the first day will be on a rubbish track, I suspect. Um, so you can take it take it down to really only five serious days where they've got um, proper data that they can compare all their new stuff with next year. I just think that's wrong. You remember, I, I think I said on this show, um, I felt that the the situation where they lock in what they're going to be running next year, motor-wise particularly, later in the season. Give them a couple of races, like you know the first two rounds, the first three rounds, so that they can make that decision then. Um, because really, it's going to be a case of they're playing into Ducati's hands because they're going to have eight on the grid next year. And what's locked in for each one is going to be slightly different, perhaps. You know, it's, They've got more opportunity, particularly if they've only got seven days of testing. They've got more opportunity to gain more data with their new innovations. You know, you go to some of the, you know, Yamaha. Hang on a second, Yamaha, where are we with them? Or oh, worse than that, Repsol Honda, net, that was the first time since 1992 we've not had a factory, as in the full-on blown Repsol Honda or the equivalent, since 1992. It's the first time we've not had a factory Honda on the grid um, because, obviously, Polis Bargro did himself um, on the Saturday, I think it was, wasn't it? And then, uh, obviously, you know, uh, Mark Marquez, 
is out at the moment through this um, eye injury that he's got. Again, this is you know really serious, and I want to touch on that again with you, Pete, if I can. Um, those two guys, Paul took this week, this day off purely and simply because he needs to be fit because Mark Marquez isn't for the first arrest tests. I mean, you've got the two factory men that, that aren't going to be testing properly because they're all incapacitated. Mark Marquez, yeah, Valentino Rossi, he's gone. Bye, that's done. All sorted, all the goodbyes and all the rest of it. We'll see him back as a team man. Um, Ty Wolfenden summed it up quite well. With age comes a cage. Ty Wolfenden, I think he's five times world speedway champion, was on the grid courtesy of the FIM who invited him across. And he said, with age comes a cage. And I remember thinking, does he mean a roll cage for a car, because we know he's going racing, or does he mean because he's going to be locked into having a child? And I've had four of them, so I know what kind of cage that is. Uh, so it's a fairly serious cage with very small bars that you can't get out of. <laughs> so good luck to me with that one as well. But the, I don't know. It's a, it's a very, very difficult thing, this testing scenario that we've got coming up. And Honda do not have people there. Yamaha don't have enough people, really, to be doing the kind of work that they've got to do with all new bits. I mean, we're talking about new motors, effectively, and how this is all going to work with their existing you know, handling and aero packages, it's going to be. I mean, if you said to Formula One or somebody like that, you're going to have seven days to test everything that's brand new, they're going to go, what? Get out of here. <laughs> It'd just be a laugh. I don't understand, Pete, why they, why they haven't actually done more. I suppose cost is a major thing. You know, it's been a major thing in the teams for some time. I think the ones that are going to lose out the most as well I'm rambling again. I know, Harry. Stop me when you care. Um, it's the Aprilia thing. It's Aprilia have had concessions <laughs> the longest. And they've only just made those little incremental steps up to the back end of the front runners. And that's all going to be lost again. That's all going to be stretched again come the beginning of the year. Because I'm assuming they've got, they've got what they've got. And that's the extent of their development to the nth degree where they are now. But when we do this great big jump come next year, maybe even a ref. It might be a great big jump in a ref. Trouble is with a ref, depends on the weather. You know, I always used to have um, a guy ring me every, you know, John Ackett used to ring me when he was involved with um, Tom Sykes. He'd always ring me and say, oh, Sykes has broken the MotoGP lap record again. He's done this, he's done that. Because a ref, in certain circumstances, when it's quite cool, runs really fast. And when the when the superbikes used to test there, they'd run really, really fast. And the super, then the, the, the MotoGP guys would go there. And of course, it would be either hot or slippy or whatever it was. You've You've really only, you can only really trust a test on the day you're doing the test on because everything else might have changed very slightly to make major differences. Stop a ramble. Stop me, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. All right, I'll pick it up then. But I mean, I mean, that point has been discussed, obviously, throughout the season. We, we picked it up and just coming on to, to the Hondas and picking up there, you know, it, this really compounded what has been just a generally awful season. You know, both... Factory Hondas, Polis Barger and Mark Marquez out through injury. Takanakagami yet again showing great pace, but chucks it away into the gravel. It's just a typical story well, of their the big season, problem though. Has gotta be. Have we seen the last of Valentino Rossi and have we seen the last of Mark Marquez? Because So you think this this eye injury from his motocross accident is actually yes, nearly I thought that in twenty eleven when he had it in the first time. Because you know, when it comes to bones and mechanical stuff, I mean, you could graft a foot on your hand to make it work, you know, and you can ride around it. But if you can't see properly, if you're having double vision like he is, you know, that's not something that's easily fixed. I am absolutely no doctor and don't understand the, 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 the detail of it. But 
it would be the equivalent of me being able to fix my um, my motorbike down on the ground floor here or try to fix my computer up here. You know, how the hell does that work? You know, if you've, if you've got double vision, if you've mm. had a, a bang on the head that, that is, is, you know, dislodged something in the back of your eye or, the, or, or whatever else is hooked up to it, that's a major, major problem. You know, and I worry that, that, that you know, Mark's tweet the other day that he put out, you know, when it rains, it pours was the first almost emotional tweet that I've ever seen from him. And he would have thought about it before he actually put it out there. And it, and you almost got the feeling that even he now is 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 kind of worried about whether he's going to be able to recover from this. Alberto Puig has been out there um, being interviewed. I, 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 again, off at a tangent, Hugh. And, uh, Natalie Quirk, who works for BT Sport, effectively she took over from Gav and Gav took over from me in, in commentary. Natalie Quirk came on the scene as a as a speedway uh, journalist uh, into our domain, which is not the easiest of places to come to, and she's absolutely nailed it. And one of her best interviews that I've seen her do was with Alberto Puig, probably one of the most difficult people to interview out of anybody on the plot. He really is not an easy man. And what she did was she just asked him a question and kept quiet instead of filling the gap in that he quite often leaves. And he followed it up, and it was a... He, he gave quite a quite a good interview over the subject to Natalie, and I've, I've never seen an interview quite as well done with him in memory, actually. So, well done, Nat. Well done, Nat. Well done, Nat. But, Pete, let's bring you back in on this as well. You know, coming back to Honda have got a, a, a tricky... I say few weeks they've got a tricky time ahead of them as well because they they're definitely going to want to put this season behind them aren't they but even out on track you know I mentioned it earlier in Akagami and they they talked about this on on the British commentary as well once again doing a typical Takan Akagami almost it's bad to say we were talking about this I remember it was one of the first questions I asked you in our very first podcast or maybe it was two or second or third or something like that but you know Takan Akagami he shows the speed but he can't keep it together when it really matters that's right and, and even his team manager is, is Lucio Cecchinello has been saying the same sort of things in public and when your team manager says that in public you know that, that it's yeah that they are worried about it I mean it's because Nakagami he's not a rookie anymore is he you know if he was making these mistakes in his first year people would understand but mm. you know he's an established rider now and he's on the latest bike you know he had everything there to, to make that step up but he's just he's just fumbling at the wrong time and it, it's just it's it's just adding as you say to Honda's problems this year Paul began the re- weekend really well didn't he he was really quick on Friday I know it was tricky conditions but he looked like you know he was on form and then suddenly that really strange accident that that you know massive accident that you don't see very often now because normally the, the electronics catch those sort of on throttle high sides don't they and he was just catapulted off so as you're saying the worst possible time with this really important test, just, just what, five days away now? I mean, you know, Paul's going to be really sore. And, um, you know, and then you've got Mark, as you say. I mean, we were looking looking back on crash to, to 2011 and, and everything that that happened then. And it was about four and a half months before he got back on a, on a bike on that occasion. And he needed to have uh, surgery. It wasn't, it was a, a local anaesthetic, so it wasn't a big job, but still it took... They waited. I mean, uh, um, Alberto Puig has been using the word patience a lot this weekend, isn't he? Because they're not really sure. And as Keith says, exactly, it's not a bone. So they're really just, you know, they're not entirely sure how quickly it's going to, to heal, what they're going to need to do, what kind of treatment. The, the, the information has been really vague coming out of Honda, really brief. 
he says Mark's social media very little about it at all and then we got this one quote that's quite emotional for Mark clearly showing that he's, re he's really down and you can't really blame him can you having gone through so much and now in his head you know he's he's recovered from bones and ligaments isn't he but it, but now he's got this question mark of when will this recover it, it, it's not a normal injury um, and so yeah it's got to be a massive concern I mean if it follows the same sort of timeline as last time then he could miss all of testing Imagine Honda are in trouble with Takanakagami. Um, you can understand why they re-signed him. He's still got that potential, but he does seem to make a lot of unforced errors. Imagine how Suzuki feel. You know, they've only got two blokes on two bikes, and Alex Rins just chucks it up the road. I mean, I was counting up his, his you know, DNFs, and the amount of unforced error that Alex Rins makes is unbelievable. I don't know how he's going to get over them. I really don't, because it just seems that he just seems to make these mistakes when he really shouldn't do by now. You mentioned about being a rookie. Yeah, he can get away with it a bit as a rookie, I suppose. But pretty soon, you know, the team are, are going to get pretty well cheesed off. With it. I wonder what David A. Brivio will make of it if he does come back. You know, the Alex Rins thing will have got by him because there will have been decisions made for next year that David A. Brivio, if he comes back, is going to be saddled with because he's then going to have to manage decisions that other people have made while he's been playing around in your game over in Formula One. Harry. <laughs> yeah, and he hasn't been enjoying it, has he? But I'm just looking at the, the final standings. Alex Rins, 13th, 99 points. Joanne Mir, 3rd, 208 points. And just looking at the numbers alone, you know. Yeah, but he's had six DNFs, Alex DNFs, Rins Harry. had got even close he's to that. He's had six DNFs. Yeah, I know. But if, and that's the thing. If Alex Rins, if they had a rider on, on board that machine who was, you know, even close to, to Jean Mir, think where they would be in, in the standings as well. Because although this weekend Ducati have sealed the team's championship as well, Suzuki have clearly made a, a big jump in, in, in Valencia and in the last couple of rounds, haven't they? They're on the up, but they need both riders to well, be on When you've only got two, two riders, one team, two riders, and you've got eight Ducatis next year, yeah. you're going to have four Yamahas next year. You. Yeah, you are up against it. You know, it's a situation that really you wouldn't expect. Suzuki have thrown a lot of money and a lot of effort into this Grand Prix situation. When they came back, it was a real mountain for them to climb, and they climbed it. They got right there, done a brilliant job, but it just seems to seems to fail on this front that we don't have the same pool that they don't have, the same pool of riders to dip into. I mean, Jorge Martin is a great example, a rookie. He's won the rookie championship in the end this year. I know it doesn't count for much for most people and all the rest of it, but he's done it. Ducati have won the manufacturers. They've won the team's um, championship as well. So Ducati are on a massive up at the moment. Okay, they didn't win the Riders World Championship. You know, watch out next year, because I'll tell you what, they've got some quick guys on what are going to be some bloody fast motorbikes. If they can make them... I, I, I love looking at the... Again, watching their TV this afternoon, I rolled it back a bit to have a look at some of the Casey Stoner interviews. I love Casey Stoner. I've always loved Casey Stoner. I love his perception, his perspective, sorry, of what's going on and where he sees it. And, you know, there were several things that he said that just amazed me. And one of them was about the anomaly that that is Ducati at Valencia, that it works at Valencia. And we've seen it over years. It's a motorbike that just shouldn't turn as well as it does on a go-kart track like Valencia. But somehow he makes it work, Pete. And I, and I have to say, two riders that were absolutely agreeing with what you're saying now, being completely worried about these Ducatis next year, Juan Mia and Fabio Quattararo. Mia was extremely down, to put it mildly, 
in his debrief. You would think, you know, on paper, not a bad result, fourth place. But he was he, he was just seemed to be shocked at the step Ducati had taken at this particular track. Even he he, he was really worried, and Quattrari the same. You know, he's he's pushing Yamaha as well and saying, look, you know, this is not supposed to be a Ducati track. You've got a one two three lockout we're going to have to take a step here because next year there's eight of these bikes on the grid. So both of them, it was almost, you could swap them around and, and the, the, their comments would be almost the same to their to their manufacturers, which is we've got to get on terms with these Ducatis because they're starting to pull away. There's, you can't just say, oh, you know, there's a long straight, the Ducatis will be quick here. You know, look at Portimao, look at Valencia. I mean, yeah, genuinely Mia and, uh, and Quattararo really, really down this evening. Eight bikes, eight riders, eight lots of data. And with a team that are right across it, you know, nowadays, one thing Gigi Delinia did when he came into that team was he brought all the elements together. It wasn't the factory versus the race team versus the riders, which you had before. There was always a, a disparity. There was always something that didn't quite gel. Delinia's skill for me has been bringing all of those together. And also the recognition since that Casey Stoner was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I love some of his comments about Valentino Rossi, for instance. You know, he said, oh, you know, all that partying and shouting and hollering and jumping up and down and all the rest of it. He said, you know, it, it used to kind of put me off. It was, the, it was there to destabilize other people. Of course it was. That's another element to Valentino. He's psychological as well as on the track. He's, he's brilliant at all aspects of things. Casey's, Casey's skill was on the track. Casey's skill wasn't as a personality or as a, you know, getting into the head game situation. He just rode a motorbike. He said at the weekend that he preferred qualifying to racing because you could get the tiniest, tiniest extra bit out of it in qualifying. In a race situation, you had other people interfering with your, with your fast laps and so on and so forth. You had other things to think about. He said he really enjoyed the qualifying side of it. And, and listening to him, he got shut down fairly quickly because there was a rather large um, Valentino fan that was um, obviously presenting that particular show. And um, she was keen not to allow... Um, <laughs> Casey to uh, pee on Valentino's parade when it came to all the jumping and and jerking about because obviously and at the end of the end of the day people were uh, working out what their best Valentino moments and somebody actually went there and said well it was when Casey walked down pit lane and um, wandered into Valet's um, garage and said um, your talent was outweighed by your ambition or your ambition I don't know which way around it goes but anyway I never had any ambition or any talent so it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, uh, I was, I was oh, just going to say that, that, that's what you. made their rivalry so great, wasn't it? Because you had Casey, who was just the ultimate raw talent. And then you had Valentino, who was the ultimate complete racer. And you had these two you know, opposing people, you know, personalities, everything was different about them. And yet they could ride a motorcycle around a track within you know, nothing of each other. So, yeah, you know, they, they both brought each other up. And as, as Casey is sort of saying now that, that, you know, racing against Valentino and beating him, it's, it's just made Casey's, you know, stock sort of rise it's, among everyone. It's great. I think this, this day really has been great from the point of view to see how many people outside of now the competition respected each other for their individual particular personas. I mean, Casey Stoner and, and Valentino Rossi have been photographed several times this weekend, you know, arm around each other, respecting each other. And that's the way it should be. Biaggi has done, various others have done. The only one that I have seen that, that I've seen before, a, a footage of a of an interview that was done with um, Valentino Rossi when he was talking about his, his competitors and which ones and all the rest of it. You know, how long how long will it be before um, uh, you can you can get over the uh, 2015 situation with um, Mark Marquez? And he said, oh, oh, oh. 20 or 30 years. <laughs> Which I remember thinking that runs probably deeper than even I thought it ran. But uh, there you go. 
Oh, God. <laughs> well, let's, uh, well, we're going to come on to some uh, lots of questions that come in, and, and we've got a few regarding Rossi, but I think we, we will come back to those ones at the end of the show because uh, Malcolm has got in touch. Actually, you know, we were talking about um, Ducati, and uh, Malcolm, I know, is a regular listener, so thank you, Malcolm. He think, he asks, do you guys think that Ducati, being Ducati, will move Jack and put Jorge into the factory team? Well, the thing is they've got a choice, haven't they? They can. I, I, I hate getting into the speculation situation sometimes because it's it's. They see things differently to how we see them. They see the the full three hundred and sixty degree circle of what's going on, and they put together the elements within each and every team, if you like, you know, crew chief to to technicians to data loggers, and so on and so forth. You know, Jorge Martins caused the biggest problem at the moment. Won a race. Four poles. He's a rookie, for God's sake. He's coming to MotoGP on a motorbike that's supposed to be on the, the second string, and he's he's you know he's kicking butt. He split the two factory boys at the weekend, being part of a the first ever Ducati factory lockout podium lockout. We've only just had the first ever Ducati you know front row, for instance. That's only just happened this year as well. So mm. you know these the, it's not just the talent in the team; it's the talent on the bikes at the moment. And Jorge Martin, you got to remember. He was throwing up all night last night. He was sick all night long. He was he was a really, really sick man. And he could only just make the press conference this afternoon after the race because he was still being sick. So the guy physically was weakened. And 27 laps of Valencia, there ain't nowhere to go to sleep at Valencia, believe me. You're on it pretty much all of the way. There was a bit of time down the front straight, but that is it. Um, so, I mean, he, he he did brilliant, really brilliantly well. Set pole position, pinched it, you know, bang Naya, you know, he spent too much time pulling Rossi around, perhaps when he should have been concentrating on, on a, <laughs> a, a, a to be former, a, a to be teammate sometime later on. I, I, I just think Ducati have, have managed to put themselves in a position with the sanction of all the other teams. This has to be a, a, agreed amongst the factory teams. They all have to agree what's going on in the rules and in the makeup of things nowadays. And to allow Ducati to have eight bikes on the grid. Right from day one struck me as not right. And if I would have been Suzuki, I'd have been forcing somewhere to get another couple of Suzukis on the grid. The grid the grid isn't going to be expanded in size. They're not going to give another couple of spaces. They might, I suppose. Dorna can do whatever they like. It's their ball. They can kick it where they like. But it comes down to money. And Suzuki, at the end of the day, Hamamatsu, you know, they don't want to spend that kind of dosh. They've already, they're already committed to a huge amount of money. And the bike is almost there. It's almost right there. But Good to see Mia back on the kind of form we'd expect him. And didn't them Suzuki's in that last couple of sets, that th- turns 13, which is where Paul Espargo launched himself over the top. That turn 13, it's one of them ones as a rider, believe me. You come over there on the gas with the thing drifting sideways, and then you've got a transit that while you're absolutely wheel spinning and God knows what, you've got to get it stopped for a second gear virtual hairpin over a rise where it's all sideways on. Then you've got to get the weight transit into the front. Then you've got to get into the stopping department. Mate, that is a scary old corner. It's one that I've I've always been impressed with. And the Yamaha and the the, the cross-plane bikes, the, the across the frame fours, just seem to have real advantage going into that final corner. I loved it. The Suzuki's just look just look so good into there. So I love the fact that we've got these different types of formats, if you like, of motorbike. We've still got the cross-plane, the the, the four-cylinder across the frame bikes, and we've still got the V fours. 
um, that are competing with each other in different parts of the racetrack. But I just think the amount of data and the amount of advantage that eight bikes on the grid is going to be over the rest is almost obscene it's an absolute uh yeah it's <laughs> they might well storm it next year who knows um i'll tell you who we haven't talked about or not well or that not. would be embarrassing wouldn't it um that's 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 the well that's the that's the great thing about moto gp the rider still mm. makes the difference you know that's the, the difference between being in a in a you know red bull you know Christian Horner thingy, Adrian Newey, I should say. Christian Horner's just a mouthpiece, sorry. I mean, Adrian Newey. Uh, or the Mercedes. I mean, you know, if you're in one of those two cars, you, you're going to be half a second a lap quicker than anyone else. Whereas on a bike, the bike might be capable of being half a second quicker than anyone else, but you're still going to be able to ride the bloody thing. And you see sometimes riders just seem to be able to put together something a little bit special. Was the Ducati the best bike when Casey Stoner was riding it? I don't think so. I think Casey Stoner made the difference. Do I sound like a you Casey do. We can, we're getting them on the show, maybe, I think. <laughs> I think that's the way, only way to go in the Christmas break. Um, I just want to talk about uh, KTM because we haven't really touched on them and because uh, Chin Maya has asked a question about them. And, uh, well, where did they end up in the end? Brad Binder, seventh, and then, well, Miguel Oliveira, 14th, Igor Laquona, 15th, and as we discussed, Petrucci, last of the runners. And uh, Chin Maya has said, uh, if KTM don't pull their socks up, surely they're at risk of losing all the talent they've nurtured so far and the ones to come brad and miguel are getting wasted with ktm well they lost their concessions that's the that's the detail that i'm talking about with aprilia aprilia have had concessions and haven't really made enough of a uh, inroads to everyone else's advantage although they've like i said tagged onto the the back of the the front runners now aprilia but now concessions are going to be changed again for next year um you know ktm lost their concessions when they were making that kind of impression on everybody and they seem to have lost their way a little bit. I mean, you've got a situation next year as well where, the, you know, the factory, you know, second factory team, if you like, of Rayo Fernandez and, and Remy Gardner, the new world champ, uh, you know, that's going to be a fairly formidable team. Rayo Fernandez is special. You know, he has been incredibly good in this second half of the season. As a rookie, again, I think, you know, is there ever, have we seen anybody that good? I don't think we have, actually. I don't think even Mark Marquez was that good in Moto2 um, compared with Rayo Fernandez. He's he's pretty special, and he's going to KTM he, or staying with KTM and going up to MotoGP as is Remy. KTM have got to step up, but they will. I think out of all the teams, I, I worry about the funding of of say Suzuki, and I worry about the funding of Aprilia. You know, engineering and innovation comes from cash pretty much, um, and being prepared to spend it. Um, KTM have proved already that they are prepared to spend it, and if they want to move the next step, they're going to have to. You know, they have to, I wonder what they've got in the locker for their innovation for these seven tests. That's next week is going to be so bloody exciting. I mean, I, how the hell can you get wet over over a test? Well, I can. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Pete, what do you think as well? Because uh, I mean, it was also let's not forget Ika Laquona's final race uh, in MotoGP four now in the uh, the Tech Three uh, KTM. Uh, have you have any of them said anything in post race debriefs? How are they all feeling come the end of the season? Uh, I think, as Keith says, it, it comes back to the concessions thing, and, and this will be this was the first time they had concessions coming into this season. So what we're going to see is are they quick learners or not? Because what should happen is I think they're going to realise, well, they do realise something went wrong this year, and they're going to know how to approach the whole system of, of, of not being able to test during the season, of not being able to change your engine. They're going to know 
which way they need to go when they pick parts for next year. Perhaps they went a bit too conservative. We don't know. You know, did, were they a bit careful because the less engine changes this year, things like that. Um, you know, but they've got all the data from this year. And so now we'll see. We'll expect them to. We, we've seen other factories make sort of a blip with concessions. We saw Suzuki do it when uh, the year after Maverick Vinales won for them, they lost concessions. They then picked the wrong engine, if you like. It was a, uh, the momentum or something inside. The inertia was not was too much, and, and they struggled that year. But they learned from it, and they you know they've been really careful. You can see it, it perhaps is reflected by the how careful they are with their technical choices now. That that maybe frustrates the riders a bit that things don't come online a bit sooner. But I think it it all sort of dates back to where they got caught out a bit last time things were frozen. So you know this was a new experience for KTM this year. They have struggled with it more than people thought. Um, you know it looked like they 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 uh, Magello time. They had that great run with Oliveira. You know, he, he won in Catalonia. It looked like they turned the corner with the chassis and the and the tire allocation, but then it seems to have sort of they've gone backwards. I think they realised that it wasn't the solution they thought it was, and that you know the key problem was always there. But we'll see from next week, as Keith says, if they really understand what the heart of the problem was. You know, this is when we'll get to see it. But the problem they've got is that it's so much harder to, to because of the testing's reduced. It's so much harder to find the cause of the problem and correct things. You know, he's, he's been saying they're going to have to go with the other big factories now. Just a few days of testing, you want to have everything planned almost to the minute of what you're going to go through um, to make sure you get these answers. And then what if it rains or something? You know, you then have to think on your feet and what do you prioritize? So, big big test coming up for KTM. But they do have great riders across the board like Ducati they have got numbers to help them with that whereas you know Honda are in trouble you know their their main men are injured and they started injured Nakagami is he going to be able to test what they really want to test to the nth degree probably not so on and so forth Suzuki you know they're stuck with what they've got whereas KTM do have a few people on the grid that are capable that are, that are fast um, I know a couple of them are rookies to MotoGP but you know, we've seen what happened in the Moto2 situation this year. One of those rookies went pretty well. <laughs> and I've got the feeling he might do it again next year on a MotoGP bike. And I'm really excited by that. It is really exciting to see the new talent coming into MotoGP. Let's park it there though for the minute and talk about Moto2 then. Um, because we uh, that was where the World Championship was crowned. Uh, it was Ralph Fernandez who won the race ahead of Fabio Di Antonio and Augusto Fernandez. But it was Remy Gardner who did manage uh, to take the title, finishing in 10th place. And at one point was falling down into 11th and was uh, looking a little bit vulnerable and really starting. I think everyone was getting on the edge of their seats there thinking, oh, dear is this actually going to come undone for Remy but he uh he didn't he didn't do it uh, we did do it even I should say uh and he is world champion in Moto2 an Australian uh, world champion he's done it again Keith uh for the Australians after well I think who was the last one for Australia it's been a while well I am only thinking about his dad Wayne yeah um, to be honest with you because obviously he was my era and we battled like mad in British championships back in the day so it's uh and, and I know how much Wayne has put into it, how much effort he's put into it, and how much love and consideration he's put into it. And it means a lot for the whole family. I was worried for Remy weeks ago because he, he tightened up. He got all, he started the year, he looked brilliant throughout the year. And then he just got a bit tight. Um, and it, I think it's the mark of the young man that he's been able to get over that. I mean, even at the start of this race, this weekend, I mean, he only had to get three points. And that was him, you know, even if, if Fernandez won the race, which he did. I think everybody did what they'd got to do. A man's got to do what he's got to do. Around Valencia, 
They were lucky in a lot of ways. He only had rain. It was only wet and cold on the Friday. It was just cooler on the Saturday and Sunday. So we had consistent weather once we actually got into the weekend, which was was good for all. Um, Fernandez did what he had to do. Got it sorted out out front. Remy, he looked like he was riding really tight. By that, I mean, you know, you just tighten up a little bit. You make little mistakes here and there. And it's all about rhythm around Valencia. You know, you, you, you lose your rhythm and you lose your place. Someone rams it up the inside. You're not exiting corners, something like someone's beside you into the next one. And you lose places really quickly. You could be second or third, first, if you like, and go back on one lap to fourth or fifth place if, if you've tightened up and you've made a mistake. And we've also got to consider, Remy was well beaten up in Portimao. I mean, he was he was properly injured in Portimao. I mean, he was completely knackered at the end of the race. He, I mean, really, he's won this championship in Portimao. You know, that's that's the one he he put the final nail into the into the deal in Portimao. If he hadn't ridden like he rode in Portimao, he might not have won this championship this weekend. Yeah, you can say ifs and buts all over the place. Of course, if if it had gone an extra lap or two longer in Portimao, then he would have won the world championship there because uh, Sam Lowe's was on such good form. It looked like he was going to catch the. You know the, the competition and, and and hand it to to Remy as the race leader, race winner last time out. I think Remy has got what he deserves. It's rare that you say that a rider deserves a world title, but I think that he's worked really, really hard. He's a great personality, and now he moves up into MotoGP as a Moto2 world champion. I mean, the pride on Wayne's face. Well, I mean, I love Wayne. He was hanging around the edge of the edge of Park Ferme, and in normal circumstances, if you were a bouncer, you'd have had him out of there because he looks like a 1970s porn star. You know, you think, what's this guy hanging around for? We need to move him on. You know, <laughs> can't come in here, mate. Wrong shoes. Um, but when you consider how much effort and time and money that Wayne Garner has put into both Luca and Remy, Remy obviously continued racing. Luca fell away years ago. That's the other son. Yeah, I, I would think. Uh, I didn't see Donna there. I mean, I, I, you know, massive source of pride. I think Donna has always been really. It's funny how Remy looks towards Wayne's first wife almost as his mum. You know, he really considers her really well. They're very close. It's a, it's a very interesting dynamic in the in the Gardner household. He speaks fluent Spanish. Lived in Spain for years since since Wayne brought them back here. Um. It's cost Wayne in, in more than just finances. I think that, that, you know, I think maritally it's, it's been difficult for him as well. I mean, he, he's a motorbike racer at the end of the day. He thinks he knows everything and he thinks he's right about everything. I'm talking about Wayne now. Remy is a completely different kettle of fish. He's a bit more, he'd be happier in his garage welding up bits of metal into something or the other. He's a, he's a proper, he's like a homeboy DIY. He's just a nice kid. I really like Remy. I like the way he's gone about his job. And now he's the world champion. I never tweeted at all this morning. And if you remember, and there was purpose in my mind, I backed Rail Fernandez ages ago because I didn't want to back Remy. I don't, I didn't want to get involved in that. I just didn't want to be the, the, the piece of superstition that tipped it away from him because, you know, you kind of know how much he's worked at it. And, <laughs> and, and obviously knowing his old dad, um, it was one of them things where I, I didn't want to be involved in any of that. And I didn't tweet this morning at all until after he won the championship. I thought, I'm just staying off it. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, kept away from social media as well. And, and then he won the world title and it was, you know, floodgates open. You know me, I've got so, so much to say. <laughs> so much to say. But it, it was very <laughs> emotional for, for Amy afterwards. Pete, who did, you know, make light of that. It's not been easy. You think, you know, with that surname, it would just be a cakewalk. But it, it really hasn't been. And, and that showed... 
That's right, yeah. And as Jack Miller also sort of pointed out when he was asked about Remy's title, he said, look, you know, don't forget, Remy came into Grand Prix and then he, he had to leave again. He went back to the Spanish Championship because it just didn't work out for the first time. So, you know, and then came back a second time. So, I mean, that shows a lot of a lot of fight, a lot of determination to keep on going. And as, as Remy said in, in part, Ferme, wasn't it? He, you know, there was a time when not many people believed in him and he didn't, I think, believe in himself sometimes. And, and you know, he's come through all of that. And, and even at the start of this year, you know, he certainly wasn't the overwhelming favourite for this title. He's had to go out there and sort of surprise people and really, you know, take this title, go and go and get it. Because there's a lot of strong riders there. And, uh, you know, Ralph Fernandez to, to get with him, what, it was four points in the end, wasn't it? I mean, he's going to be, if anyone's thinking, what if it'll be Ralph, won't it? And, and especially with three DNFs compared with the one for Remy. So, but, you know, Remy did what he needed to do. We said it was going to be a tense counting down the laps exercise, wasn't it? When it's such a, a big points lead, it's almost like a curse in some ways, isn't it? Because you, you, you just don't want to throw it away. And, uh, you know, he, he came through it all and, uh, yeah, you know, good on him. And, uh, now, as you say, you know, Wayne, very emotional in part for me, wasn't he? So proud of uh, of what his son has achieved. And now Remy goes on up into MotoGP with Raul. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, exciting times. Wayne has always said to me that uh, Remy is good on big bikes. He said he's good at sliding bikes around. When he got straight on the Triumph, he was fast straight away. I mean, a part of the reason why he didn't do so well in early early days is because he was on rubbish motorbikes. They weren't, they weren't the best bikes out there. Um, and it didn't work for him. I mean, Wayne was, I always remember Wayne was spending a load of money on bikes that basically teams and bikes that weren't really up to the kind of pace that they needed to be. As soon as we got away from the Honda power unit and got onto the Triumph, where it's a lot more talky, a lot more grunty, a lot more top, you know, a lot more everything, electronics to play with and the like, more complicated, closer to the MotoGP, further away from Moto3, closer to the MotoGP. That was the whole aim of Moto2 when they went to the 765 Triumph unit. And he's got on with it straight away, straight out of the box. He went went fast on that bike. And I can see that happening again with him. You know, I believe Wayne. Wayne Wayne's a lot of stuff, but he's not a bullshitter. You know, at the end of the day, if he says it, it's because he believes it. And 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 I believe him. He says that Remy on a fast bike, you know, on slippery surfaces is something to something to watch. So there you go, Motor GP. That should just about suit Remy pretty well. Back to the Fernandez side of things. Yeah, he did make a few mistakes early on and he had a few DNFs and he will be ruining the fact that he did. But the fact, the overriding fact to that is it was his first time in the class. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to consider that. I, I just said it a minute ago. The gap from Moto3 to Moto2 is now a larger one than it is from Moto2 to MotoGP. So, you know, he, he stepped a bigger gap. Uh, and to do what he's done in the second half of the season, phew, second in the championship, okay, it wasn't first and it was four points off of it. But I tell you what, he ought to be proud of himself. He ought to be happy with himself. And what about Aki Ayo? <laughs> World champions in Moto2, 1-2. Uh, World champions in Moto3. Um, got some really top names that are up there for, for next year in MotoGP. <laughs> Aki Ayo, he's the one that ought to be holding a big trophy at the moment. Maybe he'll smile a bit more. <laughs> he's certainly got an yeah, eye yeah. for talent, hasn't he? And as you say, you know, Ralph Fernandez, it was only four points in the end between it all at the very end. And despite those, you know, errors, perhaps rookie errors that forced him to retire, to still only miss out by four points is is remarkable. And Pete, you know, what, what, Fernandez didn't seem too disheartened after the race, uh, especially not from the pitchers. And you know, what, what was his reactions uh, to it all? Because obviously he's going to be gutted, but at the same time, he gave it a good shot and he won the race. That's all he could have done. 
That's it. And I think, you know, the maths come, as, as Keith says, you know, Remy won this in Portimao, really. So, you know, I think Raul knew the maths of the matter. It, it was a long shot. I mean, he had to win just to have a chance, didn't he? As we saw today, that wasn't a given for much of the race. You know, it was a, a tough fight at the front there. So I think he knew that, I mean, it needed something exceptional to take Remy out. And I mean, I think you can't rely on that, can you? So, I mean, he finishes the year with more wins than Mark Marquez. In, in his rookie season, and that's a, that's a big deal. Um, of course, Mark's rookie season, coming back to what we were talking about earlier, that was ended by the eye injury, his, his original eye injury. That, that's when that occurred, was in Mark's rookie year in Moto2 in 2011. So, But prior to that, he had won seven races, and he was battling with Stefan Bradl for the championship, and then he had to miss the, the last two rounds. But, yes, yeah, so Raul is, has beaten that win record as a rookie. So, you know, he's, he's definitely, as he says, you know, a lot of people believe that, Acosta, yeah, it was a stunning season, but the Moto3 bikes are raced in junior classes before you come into Grand Prix. There's nothing like a Moto2 bike. So the, the, what Fernandez achieved is, is really much bigger than what Acosta achieved in that sense. Yeah, and uh, yeah, also... Oh, go on, Keith, Sorry. apologies. No, no, you go, you're more no, important. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my own head. <laughs> <laughs> that was Remy's worst finish across the line. Tenth place was his worst of the year across the line, which which gives you some indication of where his head was at as well. I mean, he knew what he'd got to do, but I've always found that to be the most difficult, you know, concentration sapping position to be in. If you're you, you're better off riding quite often for the win rather than trying to ride for the place, it's a it's a very difficult psychological position to be in because you're riding with people around you that perhaps you wouldn't have been riding with people around under normal circumstances. Mm. So, um. What else is there that's interesting? Oh, Kel Carruthers. He was the last Aussie. Middleweight Aussie. Oh, win. he was the last one. Okay. Kel Carruthers. Uh, the last middleweight Aussie, that is. Um, so I just looked it up just then while you were giving me some space. <laughs> oh, good. Well, we're running, we're running a little bit over, but uh, we're going to carry on because I want to just finish MotoGP chat and talk about Fabio Di Giantonio rounding out his uh, Moto2 time uh, before he makes the step up to MotoGP with a good second place. So that will give him uh, some confidence going into into the uh, premier class because i think the last few rounds haven't been brilliant for him but haven't been awful but another podium to his name uh sets him up nicely for a moto gp step up next year well it does it's going to be an interesting year for some of these new guys next year i mean we've got binder coming in i see binder did exactly what he normally does and launched himself at turn four on on um uh, lap one so binder <laughs> binder bind it again um we got some really, really interesting stuff coming our way in MotoGP next year. That's if they make it through testing. It's gonna be, it's gonna be fairly hectic, oh, no doubt God. about that. But I mean, Digi, don't think we've seen the best of him yet. But it's gonna be tough. I don't know whether he's the man that we're gonna be all eyes on next year. But then again, we said that about Quattararo. Look what happened there. You just can't predict anything, can you? Well, go on then. Let's go into Moto3 because it was uh, this time it was Xavier Artigas uh, who got the race win ahead of uh, Sergio Garcia and Jaume Macia. Uh, but it was that big crash at the start. And I, I, I think everybody had their hands in the air at one point because that looked like it could have been very, very bad, especially Binder right in the middle of it all. Lucky to avoid huge injury there. Um, but... They all made it through safely, and then it was Pedro Acosta battling uh, for the win out front. And Dennis Foggia, who, of course, all eyes were on last time, was way down, but kind of silently working his way up. And then they collide. 
well, shock horror, it's Moto 3. It's almost um, <laughs> almost sort of normal, isn't it? Acosta gets taken out by Fujia this time round. So, um, Artigas, let's, let's, well, let's, let's stay with Artigas. Oh, yeah, Artigas is, is the... Basically, Artigas won that when he shouldn't have won it. Garcia gave it to him. Garcia left a bloody great big hole in the in that turn 13 before you get down to 14. He should have been right on the inside. He should have been protecting himself into that final corner. He left a massive great door open and through drifts the man for his first ever Grand Prix win. Um, uh, Garcia should have won it and he should have known better, to be honest, is my view. Um, crashing and bashing. I don't know where we're going to go with that over the winter. Well, really I, I've, got, I've, got my, I've got my question for you. Do you think the, the Foggia-Acosta incident, was it brain fade or a racing incident? <laughs> I've only watched it a couple of times on TV. I've not analysed it from, from other angles. There were no penalties given, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with the stewards on this one. Okay. Pete, what did you make of the, the Moto3 action? Because as Keith said, it was a first win for Artigas, but uh, it, you know, it, he definitely wasn't odds on uh, to be the winner uh, to until the final few laps really no that's right and um you know he's leaving that the team at the end of the year he's off to crystal gp i think cf moto another branded ktm for next year so it was kind of his farewell to the team um so a bit of a surprise because obviously if they thought he was probably maybe going to deliver wins like this they might not have let him go but anyway it's um who have they got they got <laughs> Foggia and suzuki next year at, at leopard so uh yeah and as far as the accident uh yeah Foggia got a three second penalty didn't he for that but um i mean it, we've seen haven't we since portimao we've seen acosta you know with the cheeky wave and the, you know there's been a little bit of niggle between <laughs> them hasn't there and yeah. you could kind of sense you saw acosta look back during the race and it, it was just brewing up to something now whether whether it was malicious or just a racing accident i'm not sure i'm not sure i quite agree on the penalty i, I don't know it's hard to call isn't it it comes down to whether you think that foggia you know made that move knowing there was going to be contact or not um but, but either way, it ended with Acosta on the ground in, in his final Moto3 race. So uh, he, he, probably, he probably didn't didn't do it on purpose, but he wasn't too bothered if he did. I think that's the, probably the, the line that goes under that one. Oops, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's a case of, it's, it's the final round. If it comes to grief, well, I don't care. I've lost the championship yeah. anyway, yeah. so I'm going to put it there. And if, if, if it turns out wrong, then it turns out wrong. You know, it, it, it's that that little degree of caution that's that's in the the side of your head when you're fighting for a championship isn't there when you when you get to a, just a straight race, and you might take a liberty, you might try that extra few millimeter of late braking, um, and not care too much about where it ends up. Um, but I mean, again, I'm, I'm the stewards did what they did, and, and end of season. I'm not going to call any controversy over that. I think that's where it is. Just on just on the stewards' decision, I forgot to mention this last week. It was quite interesting. I think we saw something new in that you know when Remy had his accident that we spoke about in free practice, he hit the back of uh, Ramirez, wasn't it? And anyway, there was decided that there would be no action taken. Now, for the first time, we got an explanation of why there was no action taken, and there was no there was no big announcement about this. But I believe this is the start of what Keith's been asking about. We've all been saying needs to happen, which is. Not every decision, but big decisions will be explained from now on. And race direction, they gave a very clear description of why they'd looked at the, the, the lines that both riders take normally, everything like that, et cetera, et cetera. And that was why they decided that no action was going to be taken. So, yeah, there was no big fuss made, but I think that was the start of decisions being explained to us all. Not every decision because they haven't got time, but when it's uh, when it's something significant like Remy obviously being a title contender, we will see an explanation from race direction from now on. So I think that's a that's a good sign. 
it's a, I think it's a real bonus. I think transparency is, is critical in any kind of decision like that because it rules out all your trolls and all your conspiracy theorists and all the rest of it if it's explained properly. What it also gives is it gives an opportunity straight away for a team to make an appeal based on their take on it, their telemetry, their data that they've got. I think when you've got this generic thing that comes out is you're getting done for this, that or the other without an explanation of what's going on and the details behind it, I think that leaves a team at odds sometimes with that particular decision and they can't they won't appeal it unless they they kind of have some idea about what the basis for that penalty was and i think that's what the position that most teams have been left in at the end of every steward's decision it's just this generic line that comes across article so and so so and so that's our decision um, i think now there's an opportunity within the half hour or whatever it is to make an appeal where they can appeal it and they can appeal it based on grounds that are factual to contest whatever the factual um things are written in that particular um, original penalty. Transparency. <laughs> we must have transparency in all things, I think. Absolutely. I think that this will be a hot topic for us over the off-season as well, as we see the development too of um, the, the safety implementations that are hopefully coming in across the off-season and into next season as well, because we've spoken a lot about that this year, and that will be something to keep an eye on. Um, now, before we uh, round things off with a bit of bit more Valentino chat, as we must, um, our own little uh, championship battle, our predictions... <laughs> I've got the results. I've got the I've got the the standings here. Uh, now I had to give um, some extra to avoid it being a tie. I had to give some extra bonus points out if you place them in the exact spot in which they finished. So I predicted Quartararo. Oh no, that was Portimao. Where's my other one now? Valencia. Here it is. <laughs> uh, that was Valencia. That was I predicted Bagnaia, Mir, and Miller. One, two, three. So I get an extra point for getting Bagnaia and Miller correct. Um, Keith, you were Miller, Banyaya and Mir. So you get the points for Miller and Banyaya, but you don't get an extra point because you got them in the wrong order. And Pete got Mir, Banyaya and Miller. And you get the extra point though for Miller, which means that I finished this, my rookie MotoGP <laughs> season with a respectable seven points. Then it is Keith with 10 points in second and pipping him the champion of the Crash Net <laughs> MotoGP podcast for 2021 is Pete McLaren. With I'm putting in a protest. <laughs> yeah. I want to see the written ruling behind that. I want to see it written down. <laughs> I'll write it down now. I'll edit it. <laughs> but well, well done, done Pete. Pete. You you get nothing for it except for uh, a bit of pride. Uh, but we will come back at you next year, I'm sure. And, and congratula um, congratulations on your Rookie of the Year win there. That was... Uh... <laughs> 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 what I want thank to know you, thank is where's you. the dog this week? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no questions, Keith, because you know <laughs> you had <laughs> that dog was helping oh, you God. to get this right. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, sh I'll, oh, share, right. well, I'll share the imaginary winnings with the with the dog. Yeah, with the do yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you very much, um, <laughs> and thank you as well uh, if you've been playing along as well. It's great to always get your predictions. It's just a bit of fun. Uh, but let's end then with a couple of questions uh, about Valentino Rossi while we have the chance to talk about him. Um, Daniel Francis asks you both, what do you feel Rossi's enduring legacy will be? Transcending the sport, bringing it globally into recognition across the wider media, the wider public, um, 
and he will continue to do that in the riders that he uh, is training through the academy. Yeah, he's a multi, multi, multi millionaire. His his operation, the VR forty six operation, turns over huge millions every single year through marketing and the like. That will continue. He's not done yet. You know, what will be the legacy in later life? Who knows? A man like Valentino Rossi. He's only forty two now. Blimey, I didn't even get married a second time until I was forty five and had three more kids. So there's a lot of life left after that time. My point <laughs> is, is there's still a lot to come from Valentino Rossi. He has done more for the sport than any other individual in a global sense of the word. Um, and I think that, I mean, there have been other great riders, of course, have. I'm not saying he's a greater rider than any particular other rider in other eras. I hate comparing eras. But as an individual, as a, as a, as a starring headline for motorcycle racing, he's the man. I mean, you hear comparisons with Michael Jordan, don't you? And I think that that is, is valid in some ways. Someone who, who is bigger than the sport and, and goes on beyond that, as Keith says. And you can already see, I mean, we mentioned the complete racer. As Keith says, I mean, racers, they're famously bad with money, some of them. And, and look, at he's, got a, he's, got, he's built this empire. He's, he's done the opposite of what would normally happen with a, with a very rich racer. You know, he's actually using this money to create something even bigger. And, and, and as you say, he's got the teams now. There'll be another VR46 team in Moto2 running the, the Yamaha Master Camp Riders next year. So three, three teams in Grand Prix, um, nine academy riders. Uh, you know, and I, th I think as we look back on his career, we'll, you know, at the moment we remember Rossi in the final years. But I think we'll look back in, uh, in a more general way and remember, you know what, sometimes he was just amazingly fast. You know, those years at Yamaha where from 2004 to 2008 when Lorenzo arrived, he was the only guy that won a race. Now, I know that Colin Edwards, as Keith made clear before, came very close at Assen. But still, the, you know, the reality is that Rossi, he was their only winner, you know, and it wasn't like he won one race. He won about 29 or something, you know. So he was, he went through the whole cycle of being the unbelievably fast new guy coming in. And then as the speed sort of went off, he replaced that with the experience and the race craft. And, and he just kept on going and kept on going and never sort of. Never look back on his success. I think that was the, the impressive thing. You think after achieving so much that you would just say, you know, look, at all, look at all the championships I've won, all the races that I've won. Why do I need to put myself through this? But with him, it's always been the next race, the next race. Until now, it's all come to an end. But it had to end somewhere, didn't it? And across all those classes, 125, 250, 500cc, two-stroke, and then all the MotoGP configurations except CRT, if you like. Absolutely outstanding. Well, and on that, just finally, uh, from Ben Yates, do you think the great man's legacy will actually be enhanced more by the academy riders he's brought through? As th that almost encapsulates what he did for MotoGP. As if he hadn't have been the valet, we all know, those riders might never have come through. Well, where would the sport be without <laughs> that now? You've only got to look down the grid at the moment to see who's where. You know, it's, the fact is, it, Italy wouldn't be where Italy is if it weren't for the fact that Valentino Rossi had invested in the first place. Um, so it's, you know, Spain might be the, the epicenter of our sport in MotoGP, as in Dorna, you know, straight out of Barcelona and so on and so forth. But Valentino's Academy, my God, there's some names that have, have, come, have come through that and are going to come through that for years to come. So the old VR46 thing is, and I wonder what he's going to do in car racing. He might be actually quite good at that. He's been quite fast in a car. With age comes a cage. <laughs> I'm looking to see where he goes. But and if I can go there as well next year. So I'm keeping an eye on that. Uh, <laughs> You're too big. <laughs> yeah, no, I could never be a racing driver ever. It's impossible. Um, 
Well, uh, also, before we do leave you, got some news for, for our regular listeners as well. Um, in terms of the off-season and what's happening with us and the podcast, uh, we will be regular weekly until the end of November. So we're going to have two more weeks uh, consistently, and then we're going to go down to once a month uh, through till uh, the season starts back up again, which actually really is not that very long away. Because when you take pre-season, uh, well, post-season, pre-season testing uh, into uh, account, you know, there's going to be a lot to talk about so we will be here with you every step of the way and if you've got any uh, talking points or things you want us to ask or answer then please do send them in in all the usual ways um but i think all that's left to say is uh, i suppose one quick word we'll do a proper post-season look back but i'm going to ask you both if you could describe sum up this season in perhaps a sentence how would you do it what would you say who wants to go first unpredictably magic as usual action-packed chaos yeah <laughs> absolutely perfect well keith pete that's just this yeah. podcast pete <laughs> are you reading the reviews i think you are um <laughs> but look thank you uh, so much keith and Pete, as ever thank you as well for guiding me through my first full season ever of uh, of motorcycle racing and moto gp it's been an absolute joy to be alongside you uh yeah you've got to practice one oh, word though all all what? through the winter no, Quattararo. don't you dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> You've got to practice Quattararo through the winter. Quattararo. Um, <laughs> myself, Keith, Pete and Quattararo will return actually next week. We're not going too far away, uh, but we shall return with you uh, with more MotoGP chat. We'll be talking about testing, of course, and seeing how that all unfolds uh, next week. I think you said, Pete, about five days, isn't it? So uh, we'll keep you abreast of that and uh, on Crash.net as well. For all the very latest, all your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your topics, send them in, tweet instagram facebook us just search crash moto gp please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as well and uh well the goat is gone and so are we until next week bye-bye selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.